Chefs Without Restaurants, Episode 119, Part 2 of our conversation with Dave Arnold. You know, so for, for many years, and I'm sure a lot of us were trained, right, growing up, you don't put tomatoes in the fridge. You don't do it, right? Because why? Because they turn mealy, because they turn to garbage, right? And it's well known, a thing called chilling injury in a tomato, where the texture of it actually becomes even more mealy if that was humanly possible on a supermarket tomato for it to become more mealy. Because those on the vine tomatoes don't taste like tomatoes to me, like those like weird little semi-pink softballs that they sell in the supermarket, they don't taste like tomatoes to me. So I'd always grown up thinking that if you put a tomato in the fridge, you're an enemy of quality, right? Straight. And I still think I'm right to an extent, This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Chefs Without Restaurants. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. This episode, we're joined again by Dave Arnold. This is part two of our conversation that we had. If you missed part one, go back and check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. He's the host of the Cooking Issues podcast, author of the cocktail book Liquid Intelligence, and the creator of the Searsall and the Spinsall. Dave's also the founder of the Museum of Food and Drink and the man behind the New York City bars Booker and Dax and Existing Conditions. Unfortunately, both of those are now closed. If you listen to part one, or if you know anything about Dave, you know that this could get a little interesting. We talked a lot about food science, uh, cooking techniques, and a bunch of interesting stuff that I kind of wanted to find out about. He talks a little bit about his new book, which is not going to be about cocktails. Uh, Trigger warning, he uses the word moist a lot. We talk about how to store fresh tomatoes, and we also talk about using canned tomatoes, especially in marinara sauces. We also talk about potato bread, donuts, and Moravian sugar cake. We talk about working with Jellan, his take on working with things like koji for charcuterie, and so much more. So I hope you love this episode as much as I did. I really enjoyed talking to Dave. He's someone I have so much respect for in the culinary industry and has been a big influence on me. So I was really glad I got to talk to him uh, for a little over two hours, which, again, is why I cut this into two parts. So if you love the show, please consider rating it and find me on social media and let me know what you think. And we're going to jump right into the show after a quick word from our sponsors. As a grits enthusiast, I'm honored to welcome our newest sponsor, Professor Torbert's Orange Corn. I've been buying their products for a couple years now, so I can speak to the awesome quality of these products. Professor Torbert's orange corn is the result of its founder's lifelong dedication to improving the world through science and agriculture. Over 20 years ago, Torbert set out to answer a simple but revolutionary question. Can you naturally make corn more nutritious? 
Could you deliver the benefits of a vegetable through a grain? Today, non-GMO orange corn is helping fight micronutrient deficiencies in more than 10 African countries. The vibrant orange color comes from significantly increased levels of carotenoids. Torbert decided to see what he could do with it here at home. To his delight, he found that not only could Americans' eye health potentially benefit from its higher levels of antioxidant carotenoids, but it also tasted unbelievably good. So when you choose Professor Torbert's, you aren't just saying yes to better flavor, you're also helping deliver better nutrition on a global scale. Tastes good, feels good. All of Professor Torbert's products, grits, cornmeal, and cornflour, are non-GMO, gluten-free, and vegan. All their products are sold online at professortorberts.com, on Amazon, and wholesale. And now through the end of November, Professor Torberts is happy to offer all Chefs Without Restaurants listeners 10% off on all orange corn products. Go to professortorberts.com and simply use the promo code CHEFS10 at checkout. That's C-H-E-F-S-1-0. Did you know restaurants turn over employees four times faster than most businesses? What if somebody created an affordable and effective hiring solution for the restaurant industry? What if there were a job site that only focused on people looking for food service jobs? What if that site only cost $50 a year to advertise for every job your restaurant needed? Forget the big corporate sites like Indeed and Monster. Our sponsor, Savory Jobs, has a job site exclusively for restaurants. The best part is, Savory Jobs only charges $50 for an entire year, and you can post all the jobs you want. And for our loyal listeners, use the code SAVORY10 and get 10% off. That's S-A-V-O-R-Y-1-0. So go to SavoryJobs.com and discover the job site that's shaking up the industry. And remember to use SAVORY10 for 10% off. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Another project when I have uh, some free time, I guess. So books, you have the book Liquid Intelligence, which came out a few years ago, and you mentioned that you're working on something. So what's the new book going to be? The new book is Cooking, Not Cocktails. And it's a tentatively, I haven't really discussed this with my publisher yet, because I think they think they're getting a different book than the book I'm writing. But it's going to be called Cooking Issues, and it's about the miracle of moisture management about how almost all cooking problems uh, boil down to moisture problems. So like we were talking about flowers, um, you know, pro- you know, protein damaged starch. It's like all of this really is about understanding how the differences in different flowers, you know, how they respond to moisture and how those moisture things respond when they're in the oven. And so we're, you know, in low temperature cooking or in finishing or in deep frying, or, you know, people don't really understand how things are roasted or how vegetable cookery work, all of these things. Like really, uh, you know, I think helping people to understand how we're controlling both the internal moisture and the moisture at the surface and the difference between those two things is like nine tenths of figuring out how to cook and then the how to cook, right? And then there's, there's flavors and all that, which is, you know, where your palate comes in. Right. But the, the mechanics of it is really all about manipulating the moisture in it. And so like that's that's what it's about. The miracle of moisture management. It's going to be the subtitle. Right. So it's going to be called cooking issues. Maybe people would buy something called cooking issues and the miracle of moisture management. We'll see if I can convince my publisher. But I mean, that's what it's fundamentally about. That's a great subtitle. The miracle of moisture. Hey, look, I've, I've never had a problem with the word moist. I know some people do. Uh, it's a hot button word. I, I used to work with someone who you couldn't even say that word. I mean, like. 
moist is like bad for clothing, but great for cake, right? Like it used to be, you're like, oh, ooh, that cake, moist. You know what I mean? Like everyone that was like a moist cake is yeah, good. When you cake. say it with that voice though, I think that's the thing is. <laughs> moist. Yeah, but you know what I mean? It's like, uh, again, got to bring, got to bring moisture back. Other than your stuff that you put out, what are some of your favorite culinary resources? Like, where do you recommend people check things out? Like if they just want to be a better cook in general, and I know that's a real broad term. Yeah. Well, I mean, assuming that they already own Harold's book, if you don't own on food and cooking, like you're definitely not going to listen to anything I say, if you don't already own on food and cooking. Right. I mean, that's just, or, or know about it. I actually read a lot of uh, technical, I read a lot of technical literature, uh, like a lot of technical literature. And it's, I think, hard. I, I do it because I have to. And I don't know, I'm just used to reading it. I think it's actually difficult to get useful information out of a lot of technical literature because of the way it's written. So you have to sift through like 300 pages of stuff that is not useful to a real cook to get that one sentence that is very useful to a real cook. And that's kind of hard. So I can't necessarily recommend that people start sifting through technical literature, you know, thanks to, if thanks is the right word, thanks to a lot of pirate websites out there, it's now a lot easier to get a hold of technical literature. It's a lot easier to get behind paywalls and to get hold of technical literature. And since the price of those things is, is, typically unconscionable. I don't feel bad necessarily about looking at that information. Yeah, but it's a whole whole different world uh, getting, getting behind those paywalls. Uh, and then, you know, I would um, find people that you trust and look at their information. Like you're talking about Daniel Gritzer. I've had like, a, you know, kind of, you know, heated arguments with him uh, about, for instance, tomatoes and whether they should be stored in the fridge or not. What is your take right now, in the fridge or not in the fridge? Well, okay. So first of all, I was gonna say, da Daniel Gritzer is a trusted source. So if Daniel Gritzer says something, you at least have to take it seriously. So it's like, you don't have to believe, you don't have to think he's right necessarily, but you have to take what he says seriously. You know, so for, for many years, and I'm sure a lot of us were trained, right, growing up, you don't put tomatoes in the fridge. You don't do it, right? Because why? Because they turn mealy, because they turn to garbage, right? And it's well-known, a thing called chilling injury in a tomato, where the texture of it actually becomes even more mealy if that was humanly possible on a supermarket tomato for it to become more mealy. Now, this advice was given to us in the days before the Campari tomato which by the way, I think are kind of a godsend, like those little cocktail tomatoes and those Campari tomatoes and things like that. I really, honestly, like they're a godsend because any time of year I can get something that is roughly tomato flavored, that is fresh. Because those on the vine tomatoes don't taste like tomatoes to me. Like those like weird little semi pink softballs that they sell in the supermarket, they don't taste like tomatoes to me. So I'd always grown up thinking that if you put a tomato in the fridge, you're an enemy of quality, right? Straight. And I still think I'm right to an extent, but Daniel Gritzer did a, an experiment where he went to his you know, apartment in the summer, which he said wasn't air conditioned, but uh, Sirius Eats needs to pay him a lot more if he can't afford to air condition his New York City apartment because New York City apartments are not livable without air conditioning. 
Anyway, so he was saying he didn't have an air-conditioned apartment, which, again, I find difficult to believe, but we'll take him at his word. Uh, and he took some tomatoes, and he put them on the, uh, on the counter, and then he put some in the fridge. And he said that what happened is, is that tomatoes keep ripening, right, when they're sitting around, that the ones uh, on the counter actually went over the hill and lost a lot of their volatile characteristics. And so that if you're only going to store something for a day or two, and if the tomato is, you know, one of these ones that is kind of like not going to get great and is like where it is that you're actually better off storing it in the fridge for those short periods of time. And so I was like, you know what? All right, that's fair. But that's not how I roll with a tomato. So like, like, if I'm going to buy a, a, like a fancy tomato, the tomatoes that I buy, right, I buy them very specifically. First of all, they're fantastically expensive. It's the Aunt Ruby's German Green and the German, uh, and the, the German Stripe from uh, the Aunt Ruby's Green and the German Stripe from Stokes Farms. So you, you go and you get these tomatoes and you buy them based on what day they are going to become ripe. So you think of them almost like avocados, right? You buy an avocado. This is an avocado for today. This is an avocado for tomorrow. This is an avocado for two days from now, right? It's, you know, only, you know, people who don't think ahead that buy only today's avocado. And the same thing is true with tomatoes, if you're buying a really, really good tomato. And so for those, you know, I bring them home, I put the towel out. Uh, and I, you turn them so stem side down because the, the bottom of the tomato, the blossom end of the tomato is the most fragile place. And it's the place that ripens first. So this most, not only because of the stem, which goes in, but be, because it's like ripening later, like it's a lot uh, better to put tomatoes with this, with the stem end down. I've never heard that. Like this, this is going to make this podcast worth it. If nothing else, like I grow tomatoes. So like that tip alone will help. Right. Well, so first, like, you know, if you do leave a little bit of stem on because you don't want to be worried about breaking the tomato, like, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem with people taking tomatoes home from a market when the stem ends are left on is stem puncture, right? So you're putting the two tomatoes together and you get stem puncture from the stem end into the, um, so if there's any stem end left on, I usually trim it so that it'll sit flat. And if you know, if you grow the, the, the stem end is much more structurally sound, right? So you don't want, especially one of these big heirlooms, they get little pinholes in them from, uh, you know, in the crack areas, they'll get little pinholes. And those things, if they're stored, um, if they're stored, you know, what I call upside down, they can uh, break even more on that side and leak out and cause kind of problems. Whereas they, they tend to, that's where you're going to get the breaks there, right? Sometimes you'll get them on the stem end, but a lot of times in the folds and that, and and uh, they'll kind of skin over if you have it also stem end down. So I just find it to be better in general. And then I just wait and I watch the color wrap around towards the stem end. And when they are, when the color is right, farmer, farmer Ron hates people squeezing his tomatoes because they squeeze too hard. And so he has always told people that you can't judge a tomato's ripeness by squeezing it. And I, I think he's actually wrong about that. Like, honestly, I pick up all the tomatoes and I feel them, but I'm very gentle with them. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not like, you know how when people test avocados, they push on it to see whether they can get a thumb imprint into it, right? I'm not saying 
push on a tomato that hard. What I'm saying is, is just feel what the feel what like what's going on under the skin. You can tell a ripe tomato by picking it up, but also by the color. He is right that people don't focus on the color of the tomato enough to tell its ripeness. But you have to know the color for a particular variety and for a particular farmer because they're going to change from variety to variety and place to place. Like I know exactly what a good Aunt Ruby should look like, and it is true that you know. Certain ripe Aunt Rubies can be firmer than others, right? And you don't want to rely on squeezing it to tell you, but you got to really pick up a tomato to know what I mean, you, you got to pick it up. Yeah, I grow these pink tomatoes and they never get red. I mean, their color is pink when they're fully ripe and just you have to know that that's what that tomato is going to look like. Yeah, there's some people who if they've only bought like the red and the yellow tomatoes, like there are dead ripe green tomatoes. The Aunt Rubies is the one. Now, I don't want you, someone who doesn't have access to a good Aunt Ruby, to go out and buy a subpar Aunt Ruby and be like, uh, you know what I mean? Oh my God. So how how I've never had, I don't think, a Maryland tomato. How are they? They're good. I mean, I love growing my own tomatoes. I mean, you know, again, the reality is is like grocery store tomatoes are terrible. So even like a mediocre grown at home tomato is gonna be better than anything you're gonna buy in the grocery store, right? Right. Do you grow primarily eating tomatoes or do you grow like paste tomatoes? No, I just grow for eating. I mean, I don't do any canning at home. I don't do any of that stuff. So it's just like, we're just going to be making BLTs, lots of salsas. Um, You know, I'll occasionally grow something to maybe make tomato sauce. I've never really made like marinara or spaghetti sauce from fresh tomatoes that I love. Like you really have to grow a very dry tomato. It's just not worth it to me. I'd rather just get cans of San Marzano's and use tomato paste. So I'm just all about like the fresh summer tomato. I was going to say, I think I've heard some people recently hating on canned tomatoes. Canned tomatoes are great. Uh, Canned tomatoes are great. I mean, as an ingredient, I mean, I don't eat them out of the can, but. I didn't even know you're not, I don't want to say supposed to, that you don't use the sauce. Like I had all these recipes for like uh, pizza sauce where you use San Marzano's and I was just like pureeing the whole can and maybe that's okay to do. And then I read one book where it's like, no, you take them out of the can, you rinse them off and you just puree the tomatoes and you throw away that, that sauce. And I like, I had never heard that. I've never heard that. Can I talk about this? Please. Where, where do you, where, where do you hear this? It was in one book and I can't even tell you off the top of my head, which book it was, but I have like 10 books on pizza and it was one of them. And their sauce is to like, take them out of the can, rinse them and just use that. But you don't use the tomato sauce in the can. A couple of quick, couple of quick things. One, uh, old school classic. Like if you have like an Italian, like, like an old school Italian cook in your family, right. And they're going to process their own tomatoes. They put them through a tomato strainer that gets rid of both skin and seeds. So right off the bat, you know, have you ever tasted just the skins of tomatoes, like a big pile of skins? Yeah. Nasty. Yeah, not good. Right. So, like, I think the first mistake people make when they're making their own is like, oh, I don't actually need to peel the tomato. You really do. You know what I mean? Because the tomato skins are bitter. Now, in a canned tomato, not a problem because they've already been skin peeled. Right. And that's actually like why when I make uh, like pico de gallo myself, I'll usually use a mixture of canned tomatoes and fresh tomatoes. So, I'll get the fresh tomatoes, which I don't skin, right? Because I always want them to be raw. But then I also use some of the kind of cooked canned tomatoes as well. I mix the two together, typically. Now, when it comes to getting rid of the sauce, years ago, and I haven't redone it, but look at the back of your can. There are two ways to do this. And 
So, you know, for those of you that are buying at home, you're typically buying either, I believe it's a 12 ounce or a 28 ounce can. Those are the two sizes, 14, whatever. It's 20 something. I think it's 28 and a smaller one might be. 12. I think it's 28 is like the standard. Like I, most of my recipes are a 28 ounce can of San Marzano's. Right. And then they make a smaller can, right? In restaurant service, we're all buying number 10 cans. And a number 10 can is significantly bigger than 28 ounces. Now, when you're buying cans of tomatoes in the supermarket, like your Red Packs, your Hunts, like whatever, your, your store brand, whatever you're buying, if you look at the back, typically it's going to say tomatoes, and then it's going to say either juice or puree. And then it's going to say probably citric acid and it's going to say calcium chloride, right? There are some people who sell the tomatoes without the calcium chloride because calcium chloride is quite bitter. I actually buy the ones with the calcium chloride because I like the fact that the tomatoes hold their structure a lot better. Uh, if you're going to actually do a pureed sauce, maybe that's not important, but for something like a pico de gallo, I, I prefer the tomato to have a little more structure after the canning. And so I use the ones with calcium chloride, even though I detest calcium chloride's flavor. Okay. The ones that are canned in puree taste like garbage to me. The, the, uh, and you would want to rinse that puree off because it tastes canned. It tastes like can. So like in the way that you might like Sacramento brand tomato juice because you grew up drinking Sacramento brand tomato juice, but it tastes like canned product. And the stuff that's packed in puree has that flavor. The stuff that's packed in juice does not. So if you're buying one that says tomato juice, you should be fine. And so when I was at the French Culinary Institute, I would constantly tell the storeroom when I was doing recipes, I was like, get the number 10 cans packed in juice, not the number 10 cans packed in puree. I hate the ones that are packed in puree. They taste terrible to me. So I think whoever wrote your book probably had a lot of experience with ones that were packed in puree versus ones that were packed in juice. But I highly recommend someone who can hear us right now go and run the test now because I haven't run a side-by-side -side test in 15, 16 years, right? So it could be that the technology has changed, uh, you know, and I'm just resting on my, you know, mental memory of the past. But I guarantee that's where that author's idea of it comes from because there's nothing wrong with the juice in one that's canned in juice. Like it would make it a more watery sauce though. Like when I would see like a recipe that said like use a num like a 28 ounce can, I would literally dump the whole thing in, you know, the blender and use that in the juice. If you were just taking the tomatoes out and then not adding any in, you're not going to have all that extra liquid, which makes sense in a pizza sauce because you don't want it to be super watery. Right. But the average person doing a pizza sauce, right? I mean, look at the average instruction for a pizza sauce. Average instructions for a pizza sauce are onion to your choice, garlic to your choice, oregano to your choice you know, 28 ounce can blend reduced by half. So if you're going to reduce it by half anyway, reducing it by a little bit more than a half or a little bit less than a half. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like not that big a difference here or there. I get what you're saying. I, so like in applications, I'm not going to cook. Typically what I'll do is I'll crack the can open. I'll take a fork. I'll, I'll just get all the tomatoes out with a fork. I'll throw them into the blender. I'll blend them. And then I'll dope in the juice to get the texture I want. It's typically what I, in a non-cooked environment, non-cooks, like in a pico de gallo, I won't just dump all of the juice in because it's going to get too watery, but I'll have it there and I can use it if I need it. You know, I remember making some, uh, 
like in your class, we did these shrimp that were coated in like a tomato jelly. Like you deliberately use the juice out of canned tomatoes and then mix it with another hydrocolloid and it gelled really quickly. Do you remember like what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, uh, and you might've then heard me rant because that was another situation where if they send us the puree, it's freaking useless. Yeah. So what we were doing there was um, gelan is uh, a hydrocolloid that actually, when, when you took the class with us, still was under patent. So it was quite expensive. So the average chocolate milk uh, back in the day was stabilized with carrageenan. A lot of people have moved away from carrageenan for milk stabilization, or they've moved away from carrageenan in, in, in general. And since Gelan's patent has expired, uh, a lot of people have moved to Gelan. So if you look now at whipping cream in the supermarket, whereas on the back, it used to list carrageenan, carrageenan as, as the stabilizer, almost all of them have switched to Gelan now. But Gelan comes in a bunch of different varieties, but we were using one called uh, low acyl. Low acyl Gelan sets relatively um, relatively clear, and it's got a, like a it's got a short texture, it's relatively brittle, right? And it also sets very quickly. And once it sets, it's set forever. So we were ba- you know almost making like a, a cocktail sauce, uh, a liquid cocktail sauce, heating it with the with the Gelan and keeping it hot. And then when you dip the shrimp in and pull it out, it coats the shrimp and then sets like this into a coating that stays there. It just stays there. And so Gelan's really good for things like that because then, you know, it's heat stable. So if you want to reheat it again later, it's great. If you want to eat it cold, it has a nice, it doesn't have like a gummy texture to it. So it, it's good. It has very good flavor release. I think Wiley, uh, my brother-in-law, Wiley Dufresne, he, uh, in his donuts, I think he uses, I think he uses Gelan in his glazes for that reason. Can't remember whether he's an agar glaze or a gel. Those are some glaze. good donuts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what the current status uh, of it is. I mean, there's been a huge donut revolution in the past, you know, 10, 10, 15 years. You know, uh, you know, is, uh, are Alex and Aki still making yeah. donuts? So no. we have a Curiosity Donuts that's about 40 minutes from me. They have like four shops now uh, all over. And there's one in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. I was just there last week and had some amazing donuts. So I think they have like four or five places now, kind of all here in the mid-Atlantic. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they have one here in New York. If they did, I would have gone to no, I feel like but, there's uh, one maybe in New Jersey somewhere. Uh, is it Princeton? Or at least they used to, but um, yeah, good donuts for sure. And I had Wiley's, I think it was only at like Star Chefs. They did like the main stage, um, a donut demo, maybe like three or four years ago. What are your thoughts on potato in a donut? I, had any, like, I love potato donuts. Actually, Alex makes, they do a potato donut and I've had those before. Yeah, the only potato donuts, I had a bunch of potato donuts in Maine. I always thought it was kind of a Maine thing. yeah. Yeah, they're interesting, right? Well, it's like I have um, – have you ever had the Moravian sugar cake that has like mashed potatoes in the dough? No. Good? Oh, yeah. So my mom went to college, um, Moravian College, and it's like a recipe where you make mashed potatoes and it's a yeasted dough. And then you put it in a like a quarter hotel pan and you poke your fingers in it so it has little divots. And then in the divots, you put like brown sugar and butter, so almost like a crumb topping, and then bake it. And it's one of my favorite things. What's the texture of it? Chewy like a yeasted bread. I mean, it's a yeasted dough and then the mashed potato give it like a little more structure, like density, but it still has like a really good yeasted, fresh yeasted, quick bread texture. Huh. Yeah, you should find a recipe. I'll find my favorite one. I should send that over to you. I haven't made it in a while, but it's one of those things like every once in a while when I think about it, I go and make a pan. 
Yeah, I mean, I put potato flour in my Parker House rolls just so that, you know, they hold on to moisture better and they have a little bit of uh, chew to them. What else do I put potato in? You know, everyone likes a Martin's potato roll, obviously. I love Martin's potato rolls. Actually, there's one person who doesn't. Jim Leahy, you know, from Sullivan, hates Martin's potato rolls. I think it's because everybody loves them. I think that's the reason why he hates them. I mean, he has the right. I mean, he's kind of like the bread guy. So at least he eats good bread. Yes. He has earned the right to have whatever opinion he wishes to have about somebody else's breads. For sure. Well, I feel like we could talk forever. Is there anything you want to share before we get out of here today? What have we not talked about and anything you want to leave anyone with? If you, you know, want to ask any, you know, random cooking questions, you know, come to cooking issues where, you know, we're still recording on Tuesday, although we're not on the Heritage Radio anymore. Uh, We're going to come out hopefully with a new Searsall related, you know, product, not, you know, not entirely different, but kind of like a a revision of the, of the Searsall pretty soon. So keep an eye out for that. And, um, hopefully at the end of this year, like, you know, reveal and launch like the next big, big product. But yeah. Exciting stuff. Yeah. I haven't asked a question in a number of years. I know Nastasha now she's like super tough with getting your questions in. Right. Well, so now like you're saying you have the Patreon, we have a Patreon now, um, you know, when we switched and what, you know, then one of the nice things about that is what it does is it allows us to have a lot more interaction with, with people. So you know, uh, for those people who are part of the Patreon or, you know, who join the Patreon, I'm sure you found the same thing. You can provide a much better service to those people than you could when you didn't have that kind of interaction with them. So yes, well, it's true that the hammer likes to bring the hammer down on people at the same time, I think switching to this new system, you know, hopefully, you know, lets us be more responsive to, to people who do have questions. Yeah. Anyone who's a cook, feels an obligation to give people value, right? To, to give people things. Otherwise, why would you wouldn't be a cook? If you didn't want to give people things, you wouldn't be a cook. You'd do something else, right? So, um, you know, whether it's giving them food and having them enjoy the food or whether it's, you know, but when someone is a member of the Patreon, you feel obliged to try to give them some value for what they do, right? So it's an extra responsibility, which the good, the bad news is, is that you're having to, you know, do all this extra work that you might not necessarily have time to do. But the the good news about being held to the fire more on stuff like that is I think it ends up making your product better. It makes you make a better product. Like I know that I always do better when there's a reason for me to do better. Oh yeah, me too. And now I have, you know, I'm getting my first sponsors now. So again, like you want the show to be really good and really clean and like have it be sounding like it's well-produced. So, you know, just having that now that someone's actually paying me partially to get the show out every week, it's like, okay, I'm going to do like an extra special job to get this out there. Right. Well, I'm sorry then for going so off on tangents. Hopefully you have enough usable. No, this is better than like the generic show. I mean, this is like, yeah, when I talked to Daniel, we talked for three hours on a Sunday night. We went from like eight to 11. I'm like, you're good to keep talking. And we just kept rolling. So I cut it into two episodes because I was like, this is the stuff that the people want to hear. They don't want to hear the same stuff that's on like, you know, people do the podcast rounds, right? Like I'm sure you get people who come on every once in a while. You've had guests where they're like doing promos and they're on like every cooking show within a month or so. It's like, if you follow these people, you're going to hear the same stuff. So like, I want to kind of go into these weird corners of food. 
So we've just recently started doing kind of more guests. And most of the people I have on are either people that I know, right? Uh, in which case we're just shooting the breeze. Or, you know, if someone's coming on for the book, which I didn't realize this was kind of unusual. It's like, I'm like, you have to send me the book and I have to read it because I'm not going to talk to you about your book if I haven't read the book or at least, you know, you know, mostly read it. And so I've had a couple of people who kind of weren't used to that. So they don't really, I don't really give people the opportunity. I mean, you give them some, you know, obviously like you just did, you're like, is there anything else that you left out? You know, anything, any crap you have to push. Right. But then on the other hand, it's like, I feel like a, a lot of times people are a little bit lazy in the sense that they don't, and again, like you can't get to know everyone you're going to have on your podcast, or know everything about them. But if they have a product they're hawking, you know, you can try the product, right? I'm not going to yeah. ha have someone on the show if I haven't used their product. Well, I'm that's not, not really what your show is anyway. You know, it's not the come on the cooking issues show and tell me about yourself and your thing. Like you're answering people's questions. Right. Although we're starting to move. I don't know. We'll see how it works out. We're starting to move, but it's more like, like I say, like if I'm going to analyze someone's book, it's going to be kind of on on our terms, you know? Yeah. So. Well, it depends on, it depends on who reaches out, right? Like I approached you because I knew of you and wanted you to come on the show. So I already know a lot about you. Uh, if I pitched you and said, Hey Dave, can I come on cooking issues? You would be like, who's this guy? Like, I don't know anything about him. Like I have people all the time whose PR rep sends me things saying, Oh, love the show, which they've probably never heard of it. Uh, mm -hmm. My guest would be this guy I represent would be great for your show. And it's like this person, neither the guest or the PR person has probably ever listened to my show. And now I've got to do a shit ton of research before they come on my show. Like uh, this is probably not going to work. Like every once in a while I get a really awesome one, but for the most part, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's good. It's good to hear because like a lot of times when they send that stuff, I'm like, why, why would you want to be on our show? Yeah. Like, like, you know, like, uh, the stuff that you write about isn't the kind of stuff we normally talk about. Not that it's bad. You know what I mean? It's just not what we talk about. And do you really want me to sit there for an hour and pepper you with technical questions about your book? Or is that not really kind of what your shtick is? That's like, I'm friends with Rich Shee. And I was, I remember when he was on your show, I was like, you made it. Like, that was like the pinnacle of like Rich making Because We're like, he was like one of the first people I followed on Twitter. Like after I met you and I signed up for Twitter, like he and I went back and forth for years. So I've known him like 10 years. And we talk about like, all of the crazy shit we've talked about uh, over the years on food and stuff. And when he made it on cooking issues, I was like, this is like the first big thing you've done. Like, this is you getting out there, Rich. So funny. That's very, uh, that's, uh, that's nice to hear that you think about it that way. I love Rich, which is great. Was he on only once when his book came out? He was, no, he was on before that. I mean, this was yeah. years ago that he was on. And I just had Rich and Jeremy on my show together. So we did a, a three-way uh, podcast. So they were on a couple months ago and that was a really fun one. Like people love that stuff when you have like, you know, a, a deep dive into like Koji and fermentation and miso. But yeah, I mean, I, I backed the MoFat, like he and I at the same time, like I backed, you know, when you launched the MoFat thing and the popping gun and all that stuff. So I know him from way back then. And just remember like, that was the first time I even really remember hearing a guest on your show. Like you weren't doing it a lot, but I thought that was really cool when he came on as a guest. Yeah, well, I met him actually because he had been working with uh, MoFad. You know, he he was helping us uh, do some uh, engineering work at a flavor exhibition we were doing around um, getting these uh, bubblegum machines to uh, properly 
uh, dispense these flavor tablets that we were making for the very first show that we did at um, in, in Brooklyn for the Museum of Food and Drink. And yeah, I, I forget whether Peter Kim was the one who introduced us because Peter had maybe had tried. Anyway, he was working with us at MoFAD. And yeah, and then he was like, you know, I'm doing all this work with Koji. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Back then, who was doing that? You know, there's there's a number of people who were doing a lot of early fermentation work. So, you know, Rich was doing it. I, you know, I didn't know Jeremy at the time personally. I know he's been experimenting a long time with it. Ariel Johnson, uh, you know, uh, who, you know, was doing a lot of fermentation stuff when she was working at the food Nordic food lab and, you know, and has continued to do it, that lab program was taken over by David Zilber, who wrote another book. I mean, like there's a lot of people who've been doing it for, you know, obviously I don't personally know Sandor Katz, but you know, all, you know, praises to Sandor Katz. I don't know him personally. I've never spoken to him. I remember for years, people would be like, what do you think about this fermentation? I'm like, I don't know. Have you read Sandor Katz? What Sandor Katz says about it? Because here's someone who spent all this time knowing this stuff, you know? Um, but it was, there, it was just a real interesting time a number of years ago, especially because, you know, there were some people out of Boston who were doing uh, a lot of interesting work for chefs and people interested in cooking on the actual microbiology of what was going on. Anyway. Yeah. It was an interesting, interesting time. Now, like, you know, I think everyone's interested in, in that stuff, which is, which is good. It only makes cooking better. In fact, I think that, you know, everyone's like, Oh, uh, modern techniques that was, you know, that was 2005 to 2009 or 10. And now it's, I'm like, there's no such thing. It's like, it's like fermentation's not going to like come and go. It's like everyone, like the creative kind of edge of chefs, they're always looking for new ways to keep themselves interested to keep their guests interested, to keep themselves interested, to stay engaged, to learn more, to become more engaged with their craft. And in the same way that like learning the science behind cooking and learning new techniques was a way to get yourself more engaged, learning fermentation and learning how you can take these kind of sim simple base materials and just focus on them very finely. And then, you know, augment them through these processes of fermentation is just also a tremendous way to keep yourself interested, keep yourself refreshed, give your own unique stance to what's going on. So I don't see them as like, oh, we used to do the modern stuff and now we're all fermenting. It's, it's all us learning and, you know, becoming more engaged and I think better as a community for it. Yeah, you're seeing less uh, spherified things on menus, but I think people are taking the real beneficial, like how to keep a vinaigrette emulsified, like that kind of stuff, more practical application. I think you'll see the same with, you know, the 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 kojis, like, you know, people now making charcuterie and like super fast aging them, I think as a very practical use for that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, I, you know, I have, I, I would be interested in doing like a, a lot of side by side, you know, any... Anything that claims to accelerate a process that has been going on for, you know, or a, a, a cooking technique that's been going on for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years, I'm always like, it's like a, a, one of the techniques I did for cocktails, rapid infusion with the, with the, um, with the EC, right? People are like, oh, so this replaces long infusion? I'm like, no, different. You know what I mean? Like a valid cooking technique, but different. Use it, for, it, it produces a different result. And I think the same thing is going to be true with anything that's called an accelerated aging. I think you're going to get, I think what's going to happen is, is you're going to get a different product that has that, 
you know, rings a lot of the same bells that would get rung in a traditional aged product and also has a much shorter cycle time, therefore making it much easier to integrate into a, um, into a restaurant or even a home procedure. Right. Yeah. But is any accelerate, like, is anyone going to make a whiskey that they age in two weeks that tastes the same as, as one that is years old? I highly doubt it. Right. Can they make something that's delicious? Probably, maybe. I went nuts with the fast aging or whatever infusion in the ISI after I learned that from you. So I started to go down the cocktail rabbit hole. Uh, and I've been to Booker and Dax and been to existing conditions, both of which I love. There's nothing like a hot poker cocktail, you know? Oh, you know, there's such a pain to make, but like not the cocktails, poker. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I was never able to get them manufactured because um, they're inherently going to break. And no manufacturer wants to make something that has such a short lifetime. That's not quantifiable, right? Anyway, someday maybe we'll have another, we'll have another bar. We'll see. I don't know that I have it in me to do another, you know, opening as the person opening it, but hopefully I have it in me to be involved in another opening. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for thanks for having me. I hope uh, hope you had a good time having me on. I never know what's happening when I'm talking. Things just come into my head and go out of my mouth, so I have no idea how things have uh, how things have gone. I knew we'd go down the rabbit hole in a few of these things and go off on weird side ta- tangents. I didn't expect to be talking about you know potato bread or canned tomatoes or really any of our conversation. So, yeah, I mean, well, that's the 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 plus and the minus of talking with me. It's the, no one knows where it's gonna. I don't know where it's gonna go. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.